So we're going to look at Isaiah 5 tonight. And if you remember last time that we were together, about three weeks ago, we were looking at Isaiah 2 through 4, and we saw that Jerusalem was the main focus. And it began with kind of a, 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 um, a beautified picture, a picture of Jerusalem in, in the way that Jerusalem was intended to be. In, in righteousness and in justice and holiness, honoring and glorifying God. But then we see the, the bulk of chapter 2 through 4 is really an oracle of judgment against the current situation of Jerusalem. So it's, it's kind of compared and contrasted with what it was intended to be. And so Isaiah, as a mouthpiece of the Lord as his spokesman, is bringing to bear the covenant of God, the the Mosaic covenant, the law, the scriptures, and is basically showing the people of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, you have violated the covenant. You have broken God's laws. You have engaged in idolatry. You have engaged in uh, oppression, mistreatment of your neighbor. You have engaged in injustice and the, the leaders taking bribes. And, and so Isaiah just lays out his case against the people of Judah in his day. And then he closes at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 by talking about a future day. A future glorious day, Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2, in which the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. And we talked about the fact that that, that branch, that symbol throughout Isaiah is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. He is called the branch because he is one who comes out of the root of Jesse, out of the line of David. And so that's the promised Messiah. And when he comes, there will be a time of great glory and peace and prosperity and of righteousness and of justice. And Jerusalem will become the beautiful picture that was given at the, at the beginning of the message. So it's kind of like the, the ideal Jerusalem. Here's what Jerusalem is right now, not what it's supposed to be. And then it ends on a high note again with a prophecy of the future glorified Jerusalem. And we know from the scriptures, the new Testament scriptures that that picture of the new Jerusalem that Isaiah describes in Isaiah chapter four is not going to be fulfilled until the end of time. So we know that the branch, Jesus the Messiah, has already come. And so there are aspects of glory that have already come to Jerusalem. The king rode into Jerusalem. The king performed his miracles in Jerusalem. So the the glorified king, the servant king, was there. But the full implications of this prophecy about Jerusalem has not been fully realized yet. But it will be, John tells us in the book of Revelation, in a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and filling the earth. And so this is a a picture that has only been partially realized to this point, but will be fully fulfilled in the future. Chapter 5 is really its own unit. It's a a separate section. And, And one of the things that we need to remember about Isaiah and really most of the prophets, is that these books, it's not like the the prophet sat down and wrote 
Isaiah 1 through 66, like at one sitting, or even over the course of a few months or a year. Isaiah, the whole collection of Isaiah really spans the whole lifetime of Isaiah as a prophet of God. And so what we have in Isaiah is we have really stitched together various messages, oracles, poems, messages from the Lord to the people, and and they've been set in this composition as it is here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes, so don't read it like it's in perfect chronological order because it's not necessarily intended to be read that way. It's intended to be read as a collection of messages, as a collection of oracles from God to his people through Isaiah the prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah uses a very vivid picture to describe God's relationship with Judah. And it's the picture of a vineyard. And uh, if you think about it, in the New Testament, Jesus uses the same picture. When he talks about a farmer taking care of a vineyard or an owner of a vineyard, and he, and he leases it out to servants. And so this, this picture of Israel as a vineyard, it has a very long track in, in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and Jesus on into the New. And so Isaiah here is picturing Israel as a vineyard. God is the one who owns the vineyard. He is the one who starts the vineyard, who plants it, who takes care of it. And what ends up happening is the vineyard doesn't produce the kind of crops that the owner of the vineyard would be pleased with. And therefore, he is displeased with the vineyard, and he's going to let the vineyard fall apart and be grown over. And it's what it is, is it's a metaphor for the condition of Judah and Jerusalem in, in, in Isaiah's time. And so let's start by looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, I'm going to read through it, and hopefully you can follow along. And we'll look at some of the symbolism that's involved here. But verses 1 through 7 is a song or a poem of the vineyard. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. Now, who's the singer then? The singer is Isaiah, right? So Isaiah the prophet is the singer, and he is singing a song for or on behalf of the one that he loves. Who is that? That's God. And a song about his vineyard, that is God's vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it, cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. Let's just pause there for a moment. Go back to verse 2. And we see in verse 2 that God, as the, the creator and the owner of the vineyard, invested great effort and care 
into the planting of this vineyard. And so just imagine someone who in the ancient world would have found a place that he was going to plant a vineyard. And what's the purpose of a vineyard in the ancient world? A vineyard is to produce grapes either for the fruit itself or for the wine that it can produce. And so he, he prepares it. He chooses a very special plot of land. And interestingly enough, God chose a plot of land, didn't he, for the Israelite people. He chose the land between the river Nile and the Euphrates. It was the promised land, the land of Canaan. God chose it. He prepared this land. And so he is preparing the vineyard. He chose the vineyard. He prepares it. He digs it up, meaning he plows it. And in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, if you're going to plant anything, you're not talking about just dirt that has to be plowed up. But usually most fields were filled with rocks. And so you've got to plow it up, but you've also got to clear it of all the rocks. And sometimes they were big, big stones that you're digging up out of the ground. And you're, you're gathering all of those stones and you're moving them out of the vineyard. And what, he, what does he do with those stones? He doesn't just throw them away. He builds a watchtower out of them. So he puts those stones to good use in the building of the watchtower. And so he prepares it. He, put, he expends great effort in making this vineyard. He cut out a wine press to make wine, to take the grapes, the fruit. When, when the fruit arrives, put it, put it to the wine press for it to make wine. But here's the problem. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Have you ever had grapes that are sour? They look good, right? They look nice and plump, and they're not all wrinkly and shriveled up. They look good. They're big. They're plump. They're shiny. You bite into it, and it doesn't taste anything like what you were expecting it to taste like. And so the fruit is bad. What do you think would happen with the wine that would come from that fruit? It would be bad as well. So bad fruit, no good for anything. And what does that represent? It represents Judah. It represents Jerusalem. God desired obedience. He desired righteousness. He desired justice. That was the fruit that he desired. But what did he get out of it? He got idolatry and oppression, injustice, hatred, bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. I think here speaking in terms of as representing God, God and his vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? Now, don't take that in the sense of God tried and failed. That's not the sense in which Isaiah is meaning it here, as if God was somehow limited in what he could do. The sense in which he means it is that God did everything that would normally be expected to make this vineyard grow. In other words, he invested full effort and everything that would need to go into making this a fruitful and productive vineyard. In other words, he didn't leave anything undone. He didn't leave anything out that should have been done. He did a full, complete job. He did a good job in preparing this vineyard, but only bad fruit. Disobedience and rebellion. So here's what God's going to do. I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, the fence of protection, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. In other words, I'm going to stop taking care of it. I'm going to remove my hand of protection. I'm going to remove my hand of care. 
my, my hand of love and, and watch, watching over the, the safety of this vineyard. I'm not going to cultivate it anymore. Briars and thorns are going to grow up in it, and it's going to be trampled down. In fact, I'm not even going to let any clouds rain on it. What does that represent? Well, Isaiah is predicting the fall of Israel to its enemies. And that these enemies are going to come and literally they're going to come and trample this vineyard. And they're going to destroy it. And he gives us the the full picture in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. And so here's the song. Here's what God did. Here's what he planted. Here's what he looked for, but he got nothing in return. So here are the woes. Verses 8, really through the end of the chapter, is now a message of judgment built on this current situation of Judah as a, as a vineyard that produced bad fruit when God desired good fruit. So verse 8, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The idea here is what the commentators suggested is that what's happening is there are people who are in positions of wealth in positions of influence, and they're taking advantage of people who are not in positions of wealth or influence. And what they're doing is they're desiring to enlarge their boundaries, enlarge their territory. And so they take house and they add another house to it. And that add another field to that. In other words, they're seeking to enlarge their territory, but how are they doing that? They're doing that at the expense of others. And in direct violation of the law of God, which in the the Torah said that family land was to stay within the family. But what they're doing is, is they're enlarging and they're seeking to add and take away from those who can't defend themselves. And so here's what the Lord Almighty has declared. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A 10-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. What's the message? Basically, it's a message of futility. And the prophets speak to this often, in that you invest all this effort, you build your great enterprises, you gather all this land, all these buildings, all these houses, you plant all these crops, And what Isaiah says is God's judgment is going to cause all of this to come out to nothing. So you plant all this great field and you expect a great profit in return. Guess what? God's going to send a hailstorm. You you, you gathered all this land illegally and and unjustly and you're expecting profit from that. God's going to bring locusts or a drought. And you're going to get nothing out of it. Futility. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till, they're, till they are inflamed with wine. 
They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Unto it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. And so you have partiers and people living their life for pleasure. He says they wake up in the morning to run after drinks. Not water, but strong drink. What do you call someone who takes alcohol in the morning? An alcoholic, right? Someone who is is addicted to it. Someone who is living their life for this pleasure. And so here you have people that are ignoring God and they're living their life for the moment. They're living their life for the pleasure that this life can bring. Alcohol, verse 12, talks about harps and lyres and banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine and dancing. And all the while not thinking at all about God. And so what's going to happen? They're going to go into exile. Those who are of high rank now, oppressing other people, well, the tables are going to be turned. And they're going to die of hunger. The common people will be parched with thirst. Death expands its jaws. What's the metaphor there? That more and more people are going to die as a result of God's chastening hand. Into it, into death, will descend their nobles and their masses with all their brawlers and revelers. In other words, this is no respecter of persons. It's going to get the high and mighty as well as the common person. People will be brought low and everyone humbled. The eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. So one of the things that we see in the prophets in Isaiah is that there is a contrast between what we see happening now and what's going to happen in the future. And what we see happening right now is in Isaiah's time, and and really much of this is very applicable to our own time too, isn't it? is that we see people who are only concerned about their happiness, their pleasure. We see people who are, all they care about is growing their business, whatever it takes to grow their business. You know, whatever shortcuts, cheats we have to do to enlarge our business and maximize our profit, we're going to do that. And what Isaiah is saying is there's coming a time when Essentially, Jesus is going to overturn the tables of the money changers. Everything's going to be flipped on its head. And God right now is being disregarded and you're living your life for your own pleasure and for your own profit. But there's going to come a time when that's going to be flipped around. And the, the pride, the prideful, the arrogant, they're going to be humbled and God's going to be exalted. So it's going to be completely flipped around and God will be glorified in the end. Woe to those, verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. The plan of the Holy One of Israel, let it approach, let it come into view so we may know it. 
Here you have people who are incredibly arrogant, who think that when God acts, it's going to be for them and on their behalf. And so they want God to do his will, they say. We want God to come. We want, we want to see him in action. And their thought is, we are the chosen people of God. So when God comes and he acts, certainly he's going to bless us. And Isaiah is saying, no, no, woe to you. You're desiring for God's action to be hastened. In other words, he's saying, be careful what you wish for. Because when God does act on you, it's not going to be in blessing. It's going to be on, in judgment. Woe to you. Woe to those, verse 20, who call evil good and good evil. Wow. That describes our day, doesn't it? Let's, let's exactly flip the definitions of what is good and evil. Those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, their thinking is completely distorted. What did Paul say in Romans 1? That it is possible for a society to get to the point where they have suppressed the truth and they've rejected God so much that God says, I'm going to deliver you over to a reprobate mind. And I think an aspect of that reprobate mind is a total darkness and cloudiness and inability to see the truth and to come to the point where it's like this, where, where what you see as good is actually in the sight of God evil. And you can't tell the difference because you're so blinded by your own evil and the reprobate mind that God has given you over to. In other words, this kind of thinking is actually a form of judgment. That God would judge a people, that they've reached the point where they are so worthy of his wrath that he actually lets them go deeper into sin so that he may judge them. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Seems like Isaiah is preaching to us at our time, doesn't it? People who think they know what is right. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. You, know, you ever notice the fact that in movies, almost all heroes drink alcohol? And, and one of the, the criteria for being an action hero is the ability to drink lots and lots of alcohol and not pass out. You watch, you know, television shows, movies, they all drink and they all drink in excess and they all seem to be able to handle it very well. They're heroes at drinking wine. But here's what happens. They end up perverting justice and they acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. So they flip justice on its head. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Remember that phrase? We said, watch out for that at the 
when we were introducing the book of Isaiah, we said one of the themes that's going to come up and up, come over and over again is this description of God as the Holy One of Israel. That's one of his favorite descriptions of God throughout the whole book. Why? Because he saw the Lord holy and lifted up. He saw him in perfect righteousness and holiness and beauty. And to see that perfectness, that holiness of God compared to the the unrighteousness and injustice and rebellion of his people is such a light and dark contrast in Isaiah's mind. Woe to those who have spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. Verse 25, his hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. What does that signify? It signifies when God brings his judgment, it is going to be severe. Because he is zealous for the obedience and the faithfulness of his people. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Now, what is this referring to? Verses 26 through 30. This is how God's judgment is going to come. God's judgment is going to come by the means that he's describing in verses 26 through 30. He holds up a banner for the distant nations. What's the purpose of a banner? A banner is a rallying point, right? It's a rallying point. It's a call for the people to gather there, and that's where they assemble and begin their march. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. He sends out the call. And here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the land, there's only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. That is an incredible description, isn't it? And what what Isaiah is describing is, in metaphorical language, an army. An army that is coming. It is an army from a distant place. And God, as the sovereign Lord of history, as the sovereign Lord of all the nations, God is going to use another nation, not even a nation who acknowledges him, but another nation. He's going to use that nation as his instrument, as his tool of judgment. And that nation is going to come in the providence of God and is going to lay waste to Israel And it will all be because God is chastening them for their obedience. And so what may seem like from a a man-centered or a historical point of view, just random acts of nations. Where nation rises up against nation. They want this land. They want this resource. They want to spread their culture. What seems like just normal human events, armies against armies, Isaiah says that's God's work in action. 
that God is the providential Lord and he can use whatever tool he wants. He can part the sea and let Egypt walk across and then flood them with water. Or he can do it by more natural means and bring an army to defeat another army. And most commentators believe that he's talking about Assyria here. So he's writing before 722 BC, before the time that Assyria comes down and totally lays waste to the northern kingdoms of Israel and subjects Judah to basically servile status, having to pay tribute. Most think that that's what he's referring to. And he describes their attack, their approach in very metaphorical, exalted language to the point where this army is so fast, so quick, they don't make a mistake. Their sandals don't break. Their arrows are the sharpest arrows. Their bows, their strings never break. That's kind of the image. In other words, they will not fail because God is going to use them to accomplish his purpose. And remember those of you who are wishing for the Lord to act, verse 30 says, oh, it's going to be a day of darkness and distress. Woe to you who wished for that day to come. In other words, this is a picture of God who is holy, who is righteous, who is just, and who will punish wrongdoing. Now, most people today, and I think probably even a lot of Christians, have in their minds, that doesn't sound like the God of the New Testament. Right? I mean, sometimes you hear this. You hear people talk about the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. Or even Christians think this way sometimes. And they have this, I think, a very distorted view of God that that God in the Old Testament was mean and vengeful and wrathful, but God in the New Testament is just grace and love. And I would just suggest that if you have that view of God, you've not read the scriptures carefully enough. You've not read the New Testament carefully enough because the New Testament says that Jesus is going to come riding on a horse with his sword and he is going to tread the winepress of the wrath of God. Second Peter three says that when the Lord comes in judgment, even the elements will melt with fervent heat. So, It's not as if God is holy and righteous and judging in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God is not just. That's not the scriptures because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? This same God who chastened his people. Now think about this. These were the Israelite people. These were the covenant people of God who were disobeying him and God was bringing his wrath on them. Imagine the end of time when God will judge the nations. And especially when God will judge those who have heard the gospel, heard the word of God and rejected it. That's why Jesus says, woe to you. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on the day of judgment because you heard and you rejected. And so God is a God of righteousness, of holiness, of justice for all time in the Old Testament, and at the end of time, at the last day, at the great judgment. But here's the beautiful thing, is God has also, in mercy, 
provided a way to escape judgment, hasn't he? He's provided the branch, this Messiah, the the suffering servant that Isaiah will tell us about in chapter 53, the one who will come and will bear our iniquities upon himself. And by his stripes, we are healed. So God must judge sin. But for those who are in Christ, in the Messiah, their sins have already been judged on the cross of Calvary. And so we don't have to fear the wrath of God because the wrath of God has already been poured out on our substitute. So for, the, for you who are in Christ, praise be to God that we do not have to fear the wrath of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for the unbelieving world, God is holy and he is righteous. And his zeal for his own glory and his zeal for his own justice must punish sin. And woe to those who fail to heed the call of the gospel.